0: Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast, episode 98.
1: The the four different C's that go into making a quality coach-athlete relationship. So closeness, uh, the commitment of the relationship, the complementarity of the relationship, the co-orientation of it. This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning and
0: then there's everything else. Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. I'm Eric McMahon, and today we are joined by Dr. Sarah Erdner, the author of the new book, Dear Coach, What I Wish I Could Have Told You Letters from Your Athletes. Sarah gave athletes one question. What do you wish you could have told your coach but never did? This collection of letters and insights provides context for a deeper look into coaching practices, which we in the strength and conditioning profession can apply in our work with athletes and fine-tune our abilities as communicators and ultimately role models. Sarah, thanks for being with us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, Um, I've enjoyed connecting with you over the last few weeks and learning about your book. I Just wanna kick things off and give you a chance to share your background with us.
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, So uh, I have a PhD in sports psychology and motor behavior from the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Uh, so the East UT, not the Texas UT. Um, and then. But my background, my undergrad and my master's is in communication studies with an emphasis in interpersonal relationships. And so I kind of merged my understanding of interpersonal relationships in the world of sports psychology. Uh, I'm a certified mental performance consultant through our national governing body, uh, the uh, Association for Applied Sports Psychology. Uh, and I'm currently a assistant professor of coaching and the coordinator for our Master's of Coaching degree, which is fully online, here at Adams State University in Alamosa, Colorado. Um, so professionally, that's me. Uh, personally, I uh, am a dog mom, an artist. I like to paint and uh, play the piano, write, which is where kind of I, I took my scholarly ways. And decided to write a book rather than a journal article that was just gonna get lost in the masses of journal, uh, research journals that nobody was gonna read. So, really, what I was hoping with my book, Dear Coach, is to bring all this stuff that I've learned through my seven years of education and then plus some years of just doing my own research uh, and actually bridge that gap between what some might call the ivory towers, uh, us in academia and the people with boots on the ground. And so I'm really proud of this book for that reason. Uh, It's some of the, you know, in academia, we're not held, uh, we're not encouraged necessarily to disseminate our findings in such a wide way, such as writing a book. Um, So I kind of had to go against the grain some to be here, but I do hope that it really benefits uh, your audience.
0: Awesome. So this idea sort of came from your doctoral dissertation and um, collecting data and letters and information from athletes. And, you know, how close is your dissertation to what the outcome of this book um, is right now? And, uh, you know, what tell us about that journey a little bit.
1: Oh yeah, Uh, the essence of it is very similar. The format is a lot different. And what I mean by that is, and I wanna back up just a little bit, how I got to the topic of my dissertation is is pretty powerful in and of itself. So uh, I first started, I wanted to know more about the coach-athlete relationship, how the coach influences athlete resilience specifically. And I started by just interviewing coaches to get their perspective. And to be quite just very frank with you, when you're in a PhD program, you're just, you are just want to finish. Uh, and so there's a lot of gatekeeping that goes on, and it's easier to get access to coaches than athletes. So we decided, my mentor and I, to go first with the coach, and then later on down the road, interview athletes. But as I was interviewing coaches about their perceptions, the most saturated response I got from every single one of them uh, is that they said, you know, Sarah, like, it's all great and well what we think, but we really want to know what the athletes think, so I called my mentor, Becky, and I was like, we got to completely redo my dissertation topic, because I was going in one direction, which was very much interview the coaches, sport administrators, so I had to completely redo my IRB uh, to get institutional review board uh, approval for my dissertation, and I changed directions and interviewed athletes, Uh, and that's when I realized I had tapped into kind of this uh, oil rig that nobody's tapped into yet because I, I thought they were going to be your standard 60 minute to 90 minute interviews. And they ended up being two and a half, three hour long interviews. Some of them, we had to come, the athletes wanted to come back. They had to go to like their job or something. and And they would say, hey, like I want to schedule, I have more I need to tell you. And so I started realizing, wow, coaches are craving to know what athletes think. And athletes are craving to to say what they want to say. So when I did defended my dissertation, uh, I actually had a lot of support by my committee uh, sending emails saying, hey, we know the traditional route is to publish in a journal, research journal, but we, you should write a book on this. And so the formulation of it, at first it was just interviews and then I wrote it in a scholarly way in my dissertation. But then I thought, you know what, it would be really powerful to just get letters, obviously confidential letters written by athletes. Asking them one question that way they can take it whatever way they want. Um, In the first rendition of the book. So two and a half years ago when I started this. uh, It's very interesting. It's taken many different flavors to what the final book is now, which is to me such a beautiful was a beautiful process for me a beautiful learning opportunity for me as a quote unquote coach, if you will, uh, a consultant. Uh, So at first I only had 10 letters. And what I did is I would provide a letter and then I would provide my two cents at the end of like, hey coach, like this is what you should get out of this letter and here's all the the research that supports it. And I was in my methods of coaching class teaching uh, the students, these aspiring coaches, and I was standing up there giving this motivational speech on as a coach, you really need to step back more and allow the athlete's voice to really resonate, provide them more space to speak and in the middle of me talking, I stopped dead lecture, and they all looked at me crazy. They're like, "Are you okay?" And I, I just said, "Y'all, I'm 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 doing I'm I'm preaching. I'm telling y'all to do something, and I'm actually not doing it in my book." And I basically outed myself in the class, used myself as a teaching opportunity in the class, and I said, "I'm writing this book, perpetuating the same paradigm, which is." I'm the author, I'm giving the reader a letter, and then I'm telling the reader what they should get out of it, which is exactly, I'm doing how, I'm writing the way in which I was coached as an athlete. So I called Amanda, my editor, immediately after class, and I was like, Amanda, we were like at the finish line too, like about to be done with the book. And I was like, "Uh, we're not done yet. And so that's when I set out on a search to find more letters. I realized I needed to shut up more. Um, and so I took a step back, I gathered, I went from 10 letters to now there's 30 letters in the book. It's very, as you know, having read it, it's very reflexive. So it's less of me telling you what to get out of it and more of me asking the reader open-ended questions so they can get out of the letters, what they need to get out of it. Um, because one of my favorite quotes is a, a book read by a thousand different people is a thousand different books. And so here I was, my ego, unbeknownst to me at the time, because it was very subconscious, was trying to tell you what you should get out of this book, instead of just honoring the expertise of the audience that's listening to this, all the other coaches, and saying, hey, like, there's things that you can get out of these letters beyond what I'm going to tell you to get out of it. And so don't let me try to impose what I think you should get out of it. Uh, And so I really hope the book, the way the book stands now, that entire process was very humbling for me. Uh, I'm very proud of that process uh, too, but I think that way it's, it's, the book is less calling people out and it's more about calling everybody into the conversation. So yes, at the end of the book, I give my two cents and I do like offer my, uh, Scholarly information, research that I know, different directions that we could take, but it's less of like, okay, these are suggestions. Now let's all come to the table and talk about how to, how to make sport a safer place, not just for athletes, because the book itself obviously gives athletes a platform to uh, share their voice because they are the more powerless within the coach-athlete relationship. But at the end, and as you know, I advocate for coaches as well, because as I was reading through the lines of these letters... And having lived with coaches and been in athletics and talked to coaches, gone and gotten drinks and with coaches, you know, they you start to realize, wow, like who's advocating for the coach, right? Like all of our money that we're shelling into is into athletes. And so, uh, you know, then you think about other like strength and conditioning coaches, right? Everything is about getting the athlete to where they need to be. Uh, and maybe a little bit of money is trickled into strength and conditioning coach development, uh, but if we're not investing in the strength and conditioning coach, then it's going to be hard for the strength and conditioning coach to then invest in the athlete. So um, that's just kind of the book in a a little nutshell, kind of sharing the process of where we've gotten today. So uh, really, the main emphasis isn't that I'm trying to out coaches or call them out or say you're doing horribly. It's basically saying, hey, I see you, and we at a macro level have not done well by you either.
0: Yeah. And, you know, in reading uh, the book, that's sort of the that that's what I came away with is that I was I had all these ideas and things that I connected to the different stories with. But I also I was left thinking how Are these going to be received by other people and other coaches in the field that have different experiences, um, uh, you know, people with different athletic backgrounds, I was, you know, you made it uh, sort of anonymous, you know, the sport, the athlete played, um, you know, and, and, and um, all the different uh, factors where we could identify the individual and so uh I was sort of playing a guessing game of like oh is this uh is this a college football player or is this a uh you know a you know a women's basketball player uh at the professional level I mean I couldn't I couldn't quite decode all of these different layers but I was asking a lot of questions of trying to get to a little deeper layer of of this and I think as coaches we do that we try to dive deeper into uh to our athletes psyche and just where where they are at and and that's what we care about but you also speak to there's this disconnect there's this power dynamic between coaches and athletes that maybe the communication isn't quite where it needs to be and so um a lot of really great takeaways from this and i think there are a lot of messages that uh everyone who reads this book will have a little bit different takeaway there but um you know one thing i want to ask you you know, through this process, you know, your book speaks to the lasting impact that coaches have on athletes. You know, what have you learned about coaching education in the U.S. and you know some of the areas we're doing well, but also maybe some of the areas where we fall short.
1: Gosh, that's such a loaded question. So, uh, by no means, the answer that I'm going to give is going to be all encompassing. I will say that uh, I have been. There's a great crowd of people. Uh, at the United States Center for Coaching Excellence. Uh, They have a committee on the professionalization of sport coaching. Uh, So I've been chatting with them about some things. So there's stuff in the works, but we understand that this is a really kind of uh, mega project. But with that being said, uh, you know, one of the things that I've been, even just, you know, I teach, I'm a assistant professor of coaching. So I teach methods of coaching. I teach a lot of different classes as it comes to diversity and equity in sport. Uh, mental health and sport to all these coaches. And one of the things that's interesting to me is right now as it stands in education is the starting point to educate coaches is like, okay, we're gonna teach you about coaching philosophies. And then we are, and then that philosophy is the foundation that you're gonna build the rest of your house upon. And that house being built by the technical tactical aspects of the sport, uh, the mental preparation. But interestingly, when I'm reading that, and again, me being a DEI professor, diversity, equity, and inclusion, Uh, And something we had to do as PhD students before we even embark on our research is we have to do our, we have to understand our positionality in the world. So who are we? And so my thing that I advocate for is, is before you can even start creating your coaching philosophy, which is very values based, you know, identify the values that you have, we need to understand who we are culturally and how that the cultural narratives that surround maybe these labels that were made up of, and what I mean by that is, let's say you download a demographic questionnaire and you're going to have all these boxes that you can check. You know, you're either this or that, this or that. And so, I have students in my methods of coaching class. The first thing we do before getting to the coaching philosophy is we complete the demographic questionnaire. We write. We they check all their different boxes respectively. Um, And then we talk about the narratives that go along with those. So for me, I would check, you know, I'm a female. What are the narratives I grew up uh, around? And this could be intersected with uh, the region of the United States I grew up in. I grew up in the South, I grew up in Alabama. Uh, So I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. So there's a lot of those narratives that were told to me on what it means to be a quote unquote, good woman, a good female. And so I have to understand these narratives that have been told to me on what it means to be this, or maybe even what I was told it meant to be a good man, even though I'm not a man, right? And understanding those narratives and how those play into my biases and assumptions, which then subconsciously, covertly influences how I interact with other people. So let's say and an example of this would be if I was taught as a, to be a quote-unquote good woman, it meant to be meek and mild and submissive to men. You know, these are all narratives I heard growing up. Uh, and then I meet a woman or let's say I'm a coach and I meet an athlete who's not those things they're a female, right? Like they would identify as a female, but they're really strong and they command a room and they don't submit to men. I'm going to covertly judge that person as like, Oh, well, you're not a good female. Right. And, and, and the reason why it's so important for us to identify these things and to bring it to our consciousness is so that we can be more aware of how we judge other people, uh, and understand that that's going to influence the coach athlete relationship. Uh, because somebody might not, you know, I think of Phil Jackson and Dennis Rodman in this situation. So if you haven't watched the last dance, uh, Dennis Rodman is, uh, I just love his spirit. You know, he is who he is. And there's a formidable episode where Phil, uh, Dennis wants to go out to Las Vegas and gamble and party. And the whole team obviously is against it. But Phil is just like, we got to let him breathe and do his thing. It's not about me trying to like deduce his body into my way of of living my life. Uh, and obviously there was, you know, Dennis didn't end up coming back after the 48 hours they, they allotted to him to come back. They had to send a private jet out to get him. But I, what I love so much about that story is that Phil understood his positionality, uh, and that he understood that Dennis Rodman was, his positionality was not like Phil's, but that didn't negate Phil from meeting Dennis where he was at and really saying, Hey, I see you. Right. Um, And so that's why I think it's so important in coaching education that we have to start with coaching positionality so that we can then understand it. Like if you're a male coach uh, coaching a female team or even a male coach coaching a male team, that doesn't mean that all those males subscribe or even want to subscribe to what it means to be a man, quote unquote. Uh, So starting there and then understanding that positionality is going to influence the values we choose that influences the coaching philosophy we have um so that's you know one step that I advocate for uh especially moving forward in these conversations with coaching education uh how I educate the coaches the aspiring coaches in my classes but we also have to think coaching education there's classism around that too so if we were to just mandate coaching education for all coaches there's money attached to that too there's some there's there's listeners right now listening to this that are like I couldn't afford that if that happened and so those are a part of conversations as well, thinking about how can we be inclusive of coaching education uh, so that way we're not locking away coaching education into these ivory towers where you have to make money uh, or you have to pay money in order to get it. And then to me, there's going to end up being a decline in coaches. Uh, so there's a lot of, I mean, it's, it's a pretty, where we're at right now in the US uh, with coaching education, and, and I am by no means an expert per se on this because there's other conversations going on I haven't been a part of. But these are factors we need to consider in moving forward And that, yes, coaching education needs to happen, but we need to make sure that we're being uh, really careful with it and not just having a microwave approach of saying, hey, we need to mandate this, and then that's actually going to cause a lot more harm than good.
0: So, you know, the curriculum of coaching development, and, and I see this as we're sort of still in this awareness stage of it you know it's okay as a young coach i need a coaching philosophy i need coaching cues i need to focus on relationships these are being communicated out there in a lot of different places in the field but it's more of just the awareness the methods of how to how to adopt these skills and how to learn these skills uh, are largely unwritten and very Uh, they're more intuitively gained just through experience. And that's why as strength and conditioning coaches, the traditional, oh, I need to be a GA, I need to intern, I need to work for free. um, It goes back to that, how we connect with our athletes and how we basically take the essentials text or any of our research driven content and then bring it to the athlete. Uh, But the message also connects to the idea of emotional maturity, and you speak to this in your book a lot, and that's a question you know I have for you is what do coaches need to consider about the emotional maturity of athletes they work with? I think when we look to mentors or our coaches as mentors, a lot of times we assume that they're beyond the you know many of the challenges and issues we face as athletes and um, that's not always the case it's sort of a dual process of emotional gaining emotional maturity that's going on especially when you're a young coach getting into the field but um, that dynamic changes you know as as you're aging uh, as a coach and getting more experience and life occurrences life changes are happening and and big events are happening, and your perspective changes. So speak to the the role of emotional maturity uh, for athletes, and also how that dynamic impacts coaches.
1: Yeah, that's such a great question. Uh, When you asked that, it made me think of Carl Rogers' work, and this is within the counseling field, uh, very clinical in nature, but he's a, uh, talks about the therapeutic nature of the relationship itself, right? Like we so often in sport like to talk about this very like one plus one equals two. And like the two is there and and that's not going to change. And all we care about is the two and the therapeutic there's byproducts of a, of a healthy relationship that can come from their therapeutic in nature is the term he uses uh, that we might not be able to anticipate Happenings, so, and what I mean by that is the therapeutic nature of the relationship actually being a vessel that helps an athlete create emotional maturity. But if we have emotionally un- mature, immature coaches, then that's really going to hurt in the helping develop athletes to be emotionally mature. And looking at this from a neuro, uh, neurological standpoint, a neuroscience standpoint, uh, we have mirror neurons in our brain and what they are is the neurons that mimic behavior that we're around. So if we have coaches that are not mentally healthy, emotionally healthy, obviously I feel like in strength and conditioning, usually physically healthy uh, coaches, you know, I have seen some walking around that uh, aren't necessarily the most physically fit or representative of, of the field, but um, athletes are going to mimic that nature. There, there's nothing you can do, right? There's the the mirror neurons are gonna fire, they're gonna mimic that. And so I think oftentimes we like to go straight to the athlete and like how coaches can influence that emotional maturity of the athlete. And really the at the most foundational, everything else I could tell you would just be Band-Aid approaches. But if the coach themselves is not emotionally healthy, then they're gonna have a really hard time not only interacting with athletes, uh, emotional health, emotional maturity, but within that relationship, helping to build it within the athlete. And so that's a lot of where we need, where I'm wanting to intercept is we need to put more attention on coaches and developing them as human beings. Uh, You know, right now, as it stands, we have a lot of, you know, especially as an example, NCAA, like mental health initiatives for athletes. Right. But how many coaches do we see around that are just mentally unhealthy, emotionally unhealthy, as much as, uh, so many other people are right there's no shame in that but knowing about mirror neurons if we're putting all this money at the bottom of the of the top down hierarchy right we're giving athletes everything and we're not helping the coaches or sport administrators too to be emotionally healthy then we're really just uh putting all of our uh we're flushing all the money down the toilet because it's a trickle down effect The coaches are going to influence the athletes. The sport administrators are going to influence the coaches that then influence the athletes. Uh, So I think that's where we really need to start is having more coaches go inward into themselves. So calling themselves in and really effacing those hard questions instead of just constantly giving information on what you can do better for the athlete. Well, no, what can you do better for yourself? And then how can we at a macro level help that?
0: You know, as coaches, there's um, there's organizational stress, you know, where we have to win, we have to recruit, uh, we have to build a program, accolades, awards, all these different things. How much of the perceptions in your book were attached to the concept of winning um, or were they um, independent of winning? You know, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, so the book is, uh, as, as you know, but for the readers, the book is sectioned off into, you know, there's part one, which are the good letters. So there are thank you letters in the book. And what was very interesting to me when I received those thank you letters is that uh, my bias was I would only get bad letters, but it really speaks to this barrier in communication, whether it's good or bad, right? Like athletes, even if it's a thank you letter, they might just tell their coach like, Hey, thanks. You really mean a lot to me. Like, see you later, you know, but they're not really going to go into detail and like tell the coach what they appreciate. So these letters are very informative, the thank you letters. The not so great letters talk a lot about, and that's part two, many of them as you probably ran across are very much, uh, you know, you only saw us as robots. You only cared about winning this. You forgot about us as a human. Like we have a soul, we have a mind, you know, we have all these things. We have a heart. Uh and so Victor Frankel has such a beautiful quote that I give in part three of the book, uh, which is that when you make winning the target, you're never gonna make it. But when you place the target as something collectively bigger than yourself, uh then winning a byproduct of that will be winning. And so I think what we've done in sports so much, and in, in understanding this comes from such a top-down, you know. Coaches are hired, retained, and fired based on win-loss records, so I'm very understanding of that, you know. Uh, Again, I'm calling coaches into this conversation and not calling them out, per se, because I understand that coaches' hands are tied behind their backs, too, with this win-loss outcome. So I'm speaking to sport administrators here as well, people that are in positions to change this cultural narrative, is that the more that we make winning the the win-loss, the main measure... So I'm not saying we need to get rid of win, loss, outcome at all and swear by no means am I saying that. But when we're making it like the number one numero uno thing, uh, it is actually hurting what you're trying to get at. So how can we flip this? How can we make it to where winning and and losing isn't necessarily the foundational narrative that builds that culture, the main measure that determines hiring, retaining, and firing, Uh, but making it something that's bigger than yourself. It's collectively trying to help, uh, you know, maybe a social justice reform, if you will. I've seen a lot of really powerful stories coming out of uh, coaches. And there was one, I I forget the name, but it was a soccer team that they had a a player on the team that identifies as gay. They all collectively decided uh, that if there was any gay slander on the field, that they were just going to forfeit the game altogether. Uh, And it was a very powerful message that I saw on Twitter, where the coach a lot of people were like, oh, this doesn't matter. It really created a, a pretty big protest uh, against why they were outing the game. Uh, but I love that they were, they were playing for something so much bigger than just the win. And so to me that they were able to, that message was heard across Twitter more than if they were to just win. Uh, and so realizing that where the bodies that are playing the sport in order to get the, the win are human bodies, they have motions, they have feelings and thoughts. And so, if we're not advocating for them at the foundational level, you know, right now, Black Lives Matter, Black bodies, uh, marginalized bodies, if we're not advocating for them and very transparently advocating for them, then it's really going to uh, the subtext you're writing within the coach athlete relationship is that it's superficial at best. Uh, and so, setting a standard that's a lot higher than winning. Uh, Again, not saying that we don't need to care about win-loss. I understand this is sport. I was an athlete myself, uh, so I understand that kind of competitive vibe. Um, But I think that these athletes are really shedding light on when we do make winning the target. It's actually hindering their overall mental health uh, and then actually hurting the coach-athlete relationship and really not getting you the results that everybody would want.
0: So you – this may go a little beyond the scope of the book, but you know, what you said really, um, makes me think of, you know, as coaches, we are creating environments for our athletes to thrive and succeed. And in your book, you talk about the uncertainty reduction theory as sort of a driving principle that, that, uh, maybe got some of these ideas going for you. You know, how does that apply towards, you know, athletes, uh, and the role that coaches have in creating a welcoming environment for um in their weight rooms on the field and just within the team setting
1: gosh such a great question uh so uncertainty reduction theory was a 1975 article so there's been some uh advancements since then uh and one of the advancements has been from uncertainty reduction which basically says uncertainty is uncomfortable as we probably all know uncertainty creates anxiety so What do we want to do? We want to reduce it. Uh, Then Brashears, uh, a scholar named Brashears in 2001 came in and he was like, hey, like maybe it's not always about trying to reduce uncertainty. Like the more that we actually are so influenced on trying to reduce it, we're actually taking away from the benefits that uncertainty can can build things for us. Right. Like uncertainty can build resilience. Uh, And so he created an advanced uncertainty reduction theory into uncertainty management theory. So how can we manage it? But in a nutshell, uncertainty reduction theory, and then even just managing it is, how can we help to manage and also reduce harmful dysfunctional uncertainty uh, to increase, uh, essentially increase our, the relationship, the strength of the relationship. And so if you put this in terms of like, you meet somebody for the first time and you don't really know them, so what do you do? You start seeking information to get to know them, trying to find similarities dissimilarities Uh, and then the more information you gather the more you start understanding them you get more comfortable and then your uncertainty is reduced about that person Um, and you're able to manage that uncertainty a little bit more so an example of this to kind of really thread in a lot of topics I've talked about up to this point so this past summer so uh, summer of 2020 you know the murder of George Floyd happened Uh, whether Obviously, black bodies are affected by that, but we also need to realize that white bodies and uh, and other racial bodies are impacted too. You know, that really influenced me as well as I'm sure a lot of other people. So that's going to cause a lot of uncertainty for athletes walking into a place when, when something that's so traumatic happens. So you, you walk into a room, so a weight room in this sense, right? And you're kind of walking in and, and you're starting to view the world a little bit differently because you're starting to see a lot of this... Uh, maybe doing more education on your own, watching things on racial injustice so that you can educate yourself more. And you walk into a space and then all of a sudden you look at your coach and you're like, do they advocate for me? Do they advocate for black? Do they care about people's bodies? Or are they, you know, just, do they just see me as a number on Excel spreadsheet? You know, are they only looking at my max squats? So a way in that sense, from a social justice perspective is for a coach to walk in and I grew up in an era, you know, I'm a millennial myself, uh, where we were kind of taught, like, when you walk into a space, like, everybody's the same person, like, you know, here at Adam State, we're the Grizzlies. So it might look like something like, okay, in this space, we're all Grizzlies, nothing else matters. So it's a very identity-blind culture of, like, you know, leave everything at the door. But you can't do that. We can't leave our identities at the door. I can't all of a sudden take off my female You know, outfit and just unzip and like leave it on a hanger and like walk in, and all of a sudden, I'm a, you know, uh, I'm a grizzly. Same thing for black bodies. They can't unzip their black bodies and hang it on a a hanger outside the door to make you comfortable or to make other people comfortable. Uh, And so, to reduce uncertainty as the coach, it's about let's talk about the elephants in the room, right? Maybe let's take time out of you know, today's lift session, if you will, which I, I can hear people cringing right now as I say that because I know time constraints is a huge thing already. Uh, and then you're also working with a sport coach that's giving you that. But don't underestimate though doing that because if you can sit down with a group of people and you can say, hey, your body matters more, your your soul matters more to me than these numbers on a sheet and just give that space to chat about, hey, what's going on? And then at the end, say, I want everybody to know that we care about all bodies in this space and that we will advocate for all bodies. Uh, And then to check in, hey, how are you doing? Really showing them that you care, right? Creating that warm environment. I would put money on that you're going to get. I mean, they are going to want to put their bodies on the line for you at that point because they know that you care about their body as more than just somebody that's going to produce for you. Uh, And so never underestimate connecting with people culturally, but I want to make one point though, too. If we talking about the coaching positionality, understanding that before coaching philosophy, we have to be comfortable with ourselves first as cultural beings. You know, I had to come to really hard terms that I am a white cisgender heterosexual female who has a PhD. I'm highly educated, grew up in a, Uh, middle-class family that's not divorced, you know, very privileged, very privileged, you know, and I had to really understand where I was positioned, how maybe I have exacerbated particular issues in the world by being colorblind, identity blind, for me to now get to a place where I'm not just an ally, but I am a co-conspirator. And what do I mean by that? I really want to unpack co-conspirator here. Uh, there is a story, and to be very, uh, very quick on this. So there was a story of a uh, a woman that was going to take down a flag that was a very racist flag. Uh, so it was a black woman that was going to climb up this flagpole, take down this racist flag, and there was a white man that was down near the pole, obviously there to be an ally to support her as she did it. The cops come, uh, the the people they they arrive and they say oh how can we get her down oh we can zap this pole with our tasers which would have killed her and a co-conspirator so this is where this man this white man went from being an ally to a co-conspirator he put his hand on the pole and looked at them and said if you do that you're going to have to kill me too and cashed in his whiteness basically knowing that they wouldn't have done that right they would have understood oh okay well there's other ways we can handle this and so getting to a space where we're so comfortable with ourselves as cultural beings that we would be in a place to be a co-conspirator to metaphorically put our hand on that pole for our athletes and, sa- and save their bodies when needed. And they would feel that they would know we would do that, right? Like that. that's where that looking at, and I wanna bring in the coach athlete relationship again here, Jowett's work on this, Sophia Jowett based out of the UK, she has the three C's plus uh, one model, which talks about having uh, the, the four different C's that go into making a quality coach-athlete relationship. So closeness, uh, the commitment of the relationship, the complementarity of the relationship, the co-orientation of it. And so metaphorically, you know, and, and again, speaking to the, the privileged people, being putting our hand metaphorically on that pole is building that closeness in the relationship it is increasing the commitment of both parties to that relationship. Uh, The complementarity, the reciprocal nature of saying, hey, I'm going to show up for you. Um, And so we're in an age now where I think, you know, people may be uncomfortable to hear it or even talk about it, but we need to start talking about it more to understand, because that's such a vital part of the relationship is the cultural aspect of it. Um, And so, again, I want to call coaches into this conversation and even say here, you know, I know this is something that's hard to, to digest. And so I'm available even beyond this podcast uh, to, to consult with people on this matter, uh, coaches that, strength and conditioning coaches or just coaches in general that, that want to know more, you know, they really want to have a conversation, you know, how can we start implementing this? What can I do? Uh, and that I'm here for that.
0: Taking a step back from from who we are and our own experiences, working towards a deeper level with our athletes. And I think those those themes come through um in the book. I want to ask you about mental toughness and resilience. You mentioned a couple of times in there. Um and, you know, there is this uh there is this thought process or just this ingrained mentality and in coaching that you know, buy in, you know, the athletes should buy in when they walk in, you know, and they, you know, they need to pay their dues. And you know what, it's about sacrifice, sacrifice for being a grizzly or, or, you know, whatever, whatever team, you know, you, you represent. And how do we create these very accepting, but productive, athletic, Focused environments and still incorporate these ideas of mental toughness and grit, and and resilience. I think those are um, those are some challenges when you think about it. Um, so I just want to get your perspective there.
1: Yeah, buy-in is is so huge, uh, and I know just from a strength and conditioning standpoint too, right? Like it's easy for an athlete to buy in depending upon the level to the sport itself, but then buying into like why, why should I care about strength and conditioning, and then that also matters per, per the position, right, uh, so, and then that also we have to, again, I'm going to bring culture into this, uh, when we're thinking about the demographics of somebody, so as a female, I grew up in the South, and so uh, I was a strong woman athlete for a while, and which is Funny because the narrative I grew up with is that, oh, women don't want to live because you don't want to get bulky, you know, like that whole, which is just funny because you actually lean out and don't get bulky. You just look awesome, I think. But um, we have to understand those narratives to then understand how to better relate to somebody to create buy-in. So let's say you're uh, a coach that's working with a male athlete that's having a hard time packing on muscle uh, or even looking shredded. You know, like maybe, maybe they do pack on a lot of like weight as far as like good muscle that moves, uh, moves mass, but they're not looking cut, right? Like they want to look like those Instagram people and like have the, the arms that are, you know, super cut and they're not. And so how might that be influencing their buy-in when they're walking into a a strength and conditioning into a gym? Because they might be like, oh, well, this isn't working and so, again, talking about those elephant in the rooms, right, like not just being like, hey, today, this is what, uh, you know, we're working for us to get stronger so that we can move this mass, whatever that mass is. If it's a softball, or a baseball, putting more power behind the barrel of the bat to be able to f- the physics of it to be able to move that ball in the direction uh, at the speed it needs to go to hit a run, uh, maybe a football player, whatever it is. So we have to understand that there's cultural narratives that are influencing either before they ever walk into a weight room or even when they're in a weight room that are influencing their buy-in of even being there. Um, And I think from a resilience standpoint, as we can, and so uh, Fletcher and Sakar, also based out of the UK, uh, are some of the leading researchers on bringing resilience into sport. And so in 2012, they actually did a pretty foundational study that, helped us see, okay, what are the tenets of a resilient athlete? Like we know all these tenets of a resilient human in general, but like, you know, they might be different in sport. And so they came up with five. And so the first one is positive personality. So a resilient athlete had, they're optimistic, they have hope uh, in things. Uh, They also have uh, intrinsic motivation, meaning they're very process focused, uh, values driven, uh, motivated by their why. Uh, high confidence in themselves, uh, their ability to be able to complete a particular task. Uh, they're able to focus uh, on the task at hand, very present. You know, We can bring mindfulness into this as well. A uh, very mindful, present focus on, on the task at hand. But one of the other factors is social support. So this brings in the coach athlete relationship. Uh, and since then, so since 2012, there's been a lot of research on how coaches can enhance athlete resilience. Um, And so a lot of them have basically uh, supported Fletcher and Sakar's work and saying, oh, well, then the coach can just, you know, increase an athlete's motivation help them focus on this. But my argument in in the gap I see is that if we aren't also creating resilient coaches that also feel safe in an environment, right? And so I remember you and I spoke previously about this, right? Like there's that process when you come in as a strength and conditioning coach, like you got to put your dues in. Uh, it's maybe not the most welcoming environment for you, uh, at times for, you know, I've seen this myself, uh, just being a part of organizations and how maybe they treat an incoming intern, if you will, you know, like there's a little bit of a hazing process that we might not want to call hazing, but that's what it is. And if we're not creating that warm, safe environment from the beginning, what we're actually doing is we're create, we're teaching people how to then treat people later, and so you coach how you were coached. And so then you, get, you become a coach and you're like, well, I put my dues in, like, this is just how it is. But in reality, we're just literally stripping somebody of the very essence of who they are. And it's hurting their motivation. It's hurting their focus. And they're having to use their energy, for example, on trying to combat the injustice that's happening on them for being hazed or picked on, whatever it is. They're having to use that energy to refocus on what they have to focus on. When instead, if they were in a warmer, more welcoming, empowering environment, then they could use all that energy to focus on what they need to focus on from the beginning, and so we'd actually be getting a higher level of optimal performance, not just out of coaches, but athletes too.
0: I, I really like the message that you know because I agree, um, both on the coaching side and the athlete side, what are we doing to make our. Uh, to make our weight rooms a welcoming environment for incoming athletes, um, interns, coaches to thrive in what they do. Um, you know, as coaches, college strength and conditioning coaches are part of the recruiting process. We're, we're tasked from our institutions to, to promote the positive qualities that our universities, colleges, and universities, or that our organizations represent. But are we doing that in our everyday actions and our um with our perceptions and our biases that come through? I think those are those are interesting layers to peel back that maybe we uh that we don't think about all the time. And so it's healthy to do that. And I like that we've been able to uh, go into some of these academic theories and maybe dive into your academic journey and relate that to some applied coaching practices here. Um But, you know, for all of our listeners, I just want to assure you that this book is extremely practical and it is, these are letters from athletes and they, I think as strength coaches, as a strength coach, you know, I connected really closely with some of the messages, uh, in the, that, that athletes were communicating and, and just what was really interesting. These were after the fact and, and, you know, I actually had a a conversation recently, um, since we had started talking with one of my old coaches and just a story to share, uh, you know, we had connected and we were going back on a, on a LinkedIn message. And next thing you know, he's like, what are we doing? Let's, let's, so you sent me a zoom invite and we're just kind of catching up one morning and this was last week. And uh, you know, it was a, a long time catch up, you know, 20 something years here. And, and so it's like, we're, we're going through all these things, but it went back to the meeting room you know, in college football and, uh, and thinking about, you know, just some of, uh, you know, when I was a freshman, sophomore in college and, you know, we would do evaluations of our coaches at the end of the semester. And we were just reflecting on some of those times, you know, of, and, and one of the, one of the things he said, and, you know, he phenomenal coach, huge impact for me. Um, you know, that, that maybe he wouldn't have realized that at the time, um, but he was reflecting on feedback that he got. And, you know, what our head coach said to him at the time is like, some of this is on you and some of this is on them and some of this is somewhere in the middle. And as coaches, as professionals, we can control that middle space and we can have an impact on that middle space. So it really, you know, I think, you know, beyond just our immediate actions, there is a layer of deep thought that needs to go into, how we are when we walk into the room and how we, uh, you know, how we relate beyond the words we're saying and beyond the, uh, clothes we're wearing and how we present ourselves just superficially, there's a deeper layer to it. So, uh, I connected with your book really personally as, and so I, I just want to thank you for that. I think it's been really, um, I think it'll be a really great, uh, message to coaches on the sports side as well as strength and conditioning and just for our listeners today when does the when does the book actually uh release
1: so you can go on amazon and order it uh and it won't come out until june 22nd of 2021 of this year uh you can go on my uh, social media accounts on twitter at doc doc underscore serdner s-e-r-d-n-e-r and i have a uh uh a order form there where you can order advanced reader copies which are signed author copies so I'll sign them for you uh and then I can so that way you can get them quicker than having to wait until June 22nd so I have my own copies that I can ship out uh and I do bulk orders as well I've had a couple of teams uh, coaching development uh organizations that have bought you know in bulk and so I ship that way as well and then that's kind of been there if they're doing like a, a book of the month if you will they'll uh through that book and i've been hearing a lot of positive feedback on that on them kind of as a team going through a collection of letters as they go and talking about what they got from it and it's really creating a space where they're able to talk start the conversation within their team you know so and that's what i wanted this book to do it's it's been very emotional for me to see the outcome uh is the biggest thing i'm seeing is there's this barrier of communication people just aren't talking uh and so for my book to be something that facilitates Increased communication. Uh, I feel like my undergrad and my master's thesis advisor would be very proud of that since I was a communication major. Uh, and so I do encourage that if you want to get it, your hands on it sooner, uh, fill out that Google form.
0: That's awesome. Um, I want to ask you you know, you, you just finished a big project and it's about to hit the market here, and you also finished your PhD. You know, what? What do you see in your future? Do you intend on doing more writing or, uh, you know, what's next?
1: Yeah, great question. I actually just started writing my second book project. uh, And I always laugh because I tell myself, I'm going to take some time off. And it's just not in my nature. I'm an artist. I'm creative. uh, I crave it. And writing is a way for me to create uh, as much as painting is. And so my next book project tentatively is titled Dear Sport Parent what I wish I could have told you, very similar flavor to Dear Coach, where athletes are writing letters to their parents on what they wish they could have told them, but never did. Uh, and again, getting the good and the not so good in those letters. Uh, so I'm actually in the data collection process for that. So if there's any listeners that would be interested, and in, maybe you're a former or current athlete, uh, and you're like, I have some things I wish I could tell to my parents, uh, but I never did. And the letters are all confidential. You know, I take that very seriously on making sure it doesn't out the athlete. And the reason why this book is so important, there's a lot of, there's still gaps in the research with coaching education, but there is very minimal information to parents on how to be a quality productive sport parent. And so a lot of these parents out here, and if you're a parent listening to this, I see you, I hear you, you're trying your best to be the best sport parent you can. Uh, But there's really nothing out there that educates them on what their athlete needs and even the coach parent relationship, you know, I think that that can really provide coaches with a lot of education on how to navigate those coach parent conversations. So that's my next book project. Uh, There's no like release date or anything. We're just in the process of gathering letters and and writing. So that's next step you know, and then 10, 20 years down the line, really looking at better education to just advocate for coaches and help them like, Hey, here's, here's some stuff that I hope makes your job. You wear a lot of hats. Uh, and I hope this makes your job a little bit easier for you.
0: That's awesome. Look forward to that, uh, second book as well. And, um, just, I think coaching education is an area that impacts strength and conditioning, but you know, the the entire environment that we work in. I think it's something that it's a very admirable goal that I think we're all pushing for and uh, really excited to uh, see how things progress for you. Uh, Appreciate you being with us today. Yeah, thanks, Eric. For our listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'd also like to thank SorinX exercise equipment. We appreciate their support. From the NSCA, thank you for listening to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. We serve you, the coaching community, So follow, subscribe, and download for future episodes. We look forward to connecting with you again soon and hope you'll join us at an upcoming NSCA event or in one of our special interest groups. For more information, go to nsca.com.
1: This was the NSCA's coaching podcast.